So, in case you're wondering, this is yet another one of those requests by my good, good Patreon supporter, uh, Frieza, who has decided that because he really likes being difficult, he wanted me to go ahead and choose my own rumination again. And just like last time, I was lost. I had no idea what I wanted to talk about, because I don't think about that. It's not something that goes through my head, is, oh man, I can't wait to ruin it on such and such. It, I don't have thoughts like that. Now, last time, I already had a lot of things I wanted to say about Zootopia, which was the previous request I filled like this. But this time I'm like, I don't know. And I thought about several games. There are several games I was actually thinking about, which I may save for the future if another request like this comes in. But I looked at those like, well, I've kind of already covered several of those games in different formats. I kind of want to cover something I've never covered before. And I'm sitting here trying to think about it. And finally, I started talking over them with my friends. And Pax came up. And he's like, you know something you've never covered? Lore. Obviously, he doesn't call me that, but you know, Lore. I'm like, what? You've never covered The Matrix. And I was like, oh, God, don't make me cover The Matrix. And he's like, no, think about it. How many times have you seen that film? Yeah, like 30. Yeah, uh-huh. Have you ever discussed that film? Oh, yeah, all sorts of places. His point was, this is the perfect kind of thing for me to ruminate on. Not just because it's a movie, which inherently takes less time than other works for me to ruminate on, but because this is a work that I know very well and have already begun an analysis of in my mind. Um, one of the things that I've often heard is that some of my ruminations are just inherently worse than others, and I agree with that. Mostly because when I go through a game or a film or whatever for the very first time, it's difficult for me to do truly in-depth thoughts on something I've only played through once, as quickly as possible, no less. But if it's something I know, something I've already played through in-depth, something I've already watched in-depth, something I've already studied or analyzed or discussed or debated, well, then those thoughts are already there, and I can build on top of those. So, not, this is not a complaint, by the way. But this is me agreeing with Pax's analysis, that if I'm going to cover something like this for these chosen ruminations, I should pick stuff I already know and haven't covered before, which brings us here. However, the very next choice I had to make was whether or not I consider the rest of the Matrix uh, IP as existing. That would be, let's see... Uh, Enter the Matrix, Path of Neo, Animatrix, Matrix Reloaded, Matrix Revolutions, and the Matrix Online. <clears throat> and I have to decide if I consider the whole breadth of things or just the film in itself. Now, I'm usually the kind of person who thinks you kind of have to consider the whole EU when discussing something. And a very strong argument could be made that the Animatrix is a mandatory part of the Matrix experience. And I would agree with that argument. However... In this exact case, I kind of decided to basically look at this with some of the background details that the Animatrix added, and the Matrix, and nothing else. And I want to explain my reasoning very quickly, because it's not a matter of preference. I'm actually someone who's defended aspects of the second film and third film, uh, mostly the second film, if I'm being honest. Uh, many times before, and thus I'm, I'm not one of those, you know, oh, the Matrix 2 and 3 suck. That's not my reasoning. My reasoning is that it feels very clear, and there are disagreeing accounts on to why this is, that Matrix 2 and 3, along with other uh, uh, attached works, like Enter the Matrix being the most obvious one, uh, were things that were designed segregate. Like, they don't really fit the first Matrix. They don't really tie into it. They don't really con congruent with it. Or to put this into another way, if I sat down right here and was like, I want to write a story about, uh, I don't know, floss. Just go with it. And I want to write a story about floss. And I write this story and I conclude it and there it is and it's done. 
and I have no ideas about going beyond it. It's just this one self-contained story with a couple of other little details that I flesh out in the future. And then someone comes along and says, hey, we want you to do tons more. We want you to do a whole franchise around Floss. And I'm like, well, but okay. And then I sit down, and then I start writing what is effectively a new story. I will keep in mind my original story, but when I wrote that first story, I wasn't thinking about sequels. I wasn't planning out story arcs. I wasn't laying pieces for the future. I was writing a self-contained story. Make sense? This is what I feel is the biggest thing between The Matrix and the rest of The Matrix IP, the rest of The Matrix franchises, because The Matrix was itself, and everything else was written with everything else in mind, and thus we have this divide between the two. Now, I'm not saying I won't ever cover Matrix Reloaded or Matrix Revolutions if a patron, uh, a patron requests it, since I don't actually decide what I'd ruminate on, uh, with very few exceptions. I'm just explaining why, for the sake of theory crafting and analysis, I'm kind of shifting those out of the window for the sake of this rumination. Okay? I've said this a few times before. Every now and again, I cover a work which has already been discussed and analyzed to death. Uh, I've covered Metal Gear Solid, I've covered The Legend of Zelda, I've covered Final Fantasy, right? Um, <laughs> I've covered works that have already been analyzed by f people who are a lot smarter than me and have a lot more time to devote to it because it's their full-time job, whereas I have to push out three videos a day, um, excuse me, three videos a week and streaming, so this is like a fifth of my job. So I, I can't really devote to it in the same way they can. And that is admittedly a bit of a defensive statement because there is no way this rumination will be as in-depth as what other people have already done on the work in Matrix. So the best I can do is what I thought was interesting to discuss, to debate, to ruminate on, and additional thoughts that I hope you guys will find interesting. We'll see as we go through. But I want to cover a few things because this is a very symbolic, uh, action-heavy, anime-influenced kung fu movie with cyberpunk and Ghost in the Shell influences, which is both philosophical and religious in terms of both Christian, uh, some previously accepted Christian myths and pre some previously accepted Buddhist myths as well. And I'm not going to cover most of that. <laughs> a couple, I'm going to touch on the philosophy a few times, but for the most part, I'm going to leave most of that stuff over there. I have actually looked into the behind the scenes of the making of The Matrix extensively. In fact, it was one of the earlier films that I really got into as far as filmmaking in general, and something that kind of began my, my analysis and discussion and... Uh, I don't know what else I want to call it. My, my love affair with the making of cinematography, directing, uh, visual effects, writing and scripting and all that fun stuff. I also want to share uh, a couple other things. Obviously, this is a very iconic film. But this film also, I had a very unique experience with it. I'd like to share this with you if you don't mind. My real life experience with The Matrix. I went to see The Matrix in the theaters with my mom. Because mom's a big film uh, geek, just like I am. And we both went there, and by what happens to be sheer dumb luck, I knew basically nothing about The Matrix walking into it. Nothing. No adverts, no pre-things, no spoilers. I point to this incident as kind of a defining moment in my life because it really hammered in for me how important the no-spoilers policy really is when it comes to enjoying a work. Because... I just thought I was watching a pseudo-superhero film, which was kind of, if you remember, it was kind of having a rise in the late 90s. And thus it was like, okay, this is kind of neat. And I had no idea where it was going. So the big reveal scene, which, spoilers, is, you know, in the, pow in the power plant scene, that blew me away. And my experience was completely changed by the virtue of the fact that I knew nothing walking into it. 
I also have to say, just as a quick aside, that Keanu Reeves is awesome. I know a lot of people give him flack, and certainly he is not exactly the best actor in the world. But he's a really cool guy, and he does very much seem to sh throw himself into his works to the point where he tries. And I do like that aspect of his presentation, and it's true in this one as well. Although the list of actors who were going to be Neo is actual, actually funny to go down the list of, like, well, we wanted this person, well, we wanted this person, well, we wanted this person, well, we wanted this person. And, like, six guys later, it's like, all right, let's get Keanu Reeves. In hindsight, I'm not sure I can picture anyone other than Reeves really playing this role the way he does. But that's just me. Let's get to the film itself. So obviously we have the initial chase and the significance of it. Now, um, this is a, a set we will actually be m matching later, and I want to give special reference to just someone whose name is Bill Pope. I wrote his name down. He's the director of cinematography for this film. Now, I don't... How do I put this as nicely as possible? I don't like the Wachowski siblings uh, as far as... I, I mean, I don't dislike them. What I mean is I don't like their cinematic style. It's just not my thing. They do some cool stuff now and again, and they certainly know their stuff when it comes to pulling off an interesting a bit of camera work. But for the most part, I just don't... I don't care for it. Um, that's just a preference thing. I'm not trying to say they're awful or anything like that. What I am trying to say, however, is The Matrix had a lot of other people working on board, Bill Pope being one of the bigger names. And I wanted to give him special credits because he, along with several other people who I will not name because there's like ten people, um, really helped to craft a very unique look for this film. And when I say unique, I say unique because The Matrix basically took elements from multiple other different things. I mentioned earlier anime, kung fu, you know, cyberpunk, and yet managed to make something new out of an amalgamation of them. I've heard some people derogatorily say this is simply a cyberpunk noir film, and I don't think that's actually doing it to just credit, even from a purely visual storytelling style approach. Getting back to my initial point, though, with this initial scene, the lighting is very specific on this scene to kind of element... Uh, present it in a way that is both disingenuous and yet very much a heavy as aspect of foreshadowing. This is, of course, the very same place where the finale of the episode will be occurring and then the, the climactic final battle. I will freely admit I didn't catch that my first or second time watching this film. Uh, it, was, it was presented in such a different light that I didn't catch it, or maybe I'm just a complete moron. Take your pick. Um, I also love the visual storytelling on display. They go out of their ways to showcase that Trinity is literally superhuman. Um, now, one of the things I do like about Matrix 1 more than Matrix 2 or 3, and this is just a preference thing, is that in this film, the superhuman abilities of basically everyone involved are merely superhuman at, say, Captain America levels, to use a modern comparison. Certainly things that a normal person cannot do, but still very low tier when it comes to overall capacity. Thus, her she is shown as struggling this whole time, straining. Uh, Carrie Moss does a good uh, presentation of someone who is just, you know, like you can almost see the veins popping out of her neck as she's just barely keeping ahead of this, and she does her mega nosedive and turns around, and, and there's this just terror in her eyes. That's all excellent visual storytelling, because it shows us that this character, Trinity, is someone who is superhuman, who is absolutely terrified of those who are chasing her. It's one of the very first building blocks in many, many, many building blocks in this film of establishing the agents and the nature of their threat. It's something that I feel this film does very, very well, because even though the agents have a near-constant presence, including the very first scene in the entire film... 
We don't really get to see them off the leash until basically the finale, the climax. But every step along the way is building up so we have full context and full appreciation for what they can do. I'll be pointing out different moments in which they, they develop and build up the agents, uh, both as a threat and as a storytelling thing as we go throughout this film. Now, so we've got Neo, and of course he's a hacker who also works at some kind of software firm and apparently hates his job. I sympathize. I've worked in a, I've worked in a cube farm before. I hated that job. It's funny because I learned a lot on that job. It was actually a graphics designer job for an engineering firm back in California. And I learned a lot on that job, but boy, God, did I hate being just another pencil neck in just another cube. Holy crap. <laughs> But, so I can kind of sympathize with Neo, even on a base human level, but obviously within the constructs of the Matrix, we can kind of see that Neo is, to some extent or another, partially aware of his, uh, let's call it the trap that he is currently within, the, the sap that he is struggling within. And I like the idea that his own personal quiet rebellion against that is basically just rebellion itself. Because if you pay attention to the little snippets we get of his life before he finds out about the reality of the Matrix, all of it is just him rebelling. Not rebelling against something. Not, re not I am going to push against you or the man or whatever. Just the generic concept of rebelling. And that makes sense for the context for what we are aware of and that passive ability. Uh, he also, of course, has a second life and receives his first of several binary choices. I'll be mentioning these as we go as well. Uh, the first binary choice being, do you want to stay here in this quiet thing with, with this computer that's talking to you? Or do you want to go with these people and try to socialize? Now, it's not really framed in that sense. And I think that's on purpose because this is, this is being presented as in a way that we're not supposed to think of it as a choice. But it is a choice. And it is a binary choice, just like future choices that will come up. The idea of him going then, and he interacts with Trinity, and she gives him this extremely vague ideas of, you don't know what the Matrix is, etc., etc. Her outfit looks extremely uncomfortable. And we also get uh, one little tiny tidbit, which is kind of important. The scene and the music in the club kind of segue smoothly into his alarm going off, and then he gets up and rushes off. Now, no attention is paid on this. Neo himself doesn't get up, and it, like, they could have done very simply a thing where he gets up and is like, oh man, what a dream, or, oh, you know, like a confused expression for a minute, like maybe. Instead, this is very smoothly and quietly implied to have all been a dream. Now, based on the context of the film, and based on the context of the storytelling, we could probably presume that all of those events did happen within the Matrix. But that little spark of, hmm, is left there for us to think about in the future, and will come up very significantly in a bit. And I'll pause to talk about that for a moment when we get there. So, he tries, he, you know, he, he's at his work. His boss tells him, this is the second of the binary choices. You know, you, you, you need to be here on time and you need to be doing your job, etc., etc. So do you want to keep working with this company or not? Yes, sir. Of course, sir. And then he, he, he goes to his, his cubicle where he's doing nothing. I know this sounds like a minor thing, and I just mentioned how much I hated working in a cube farm, but I want to re-emphasize some excellent visual storytelling. Because it's like a three-second scene. I should have written down exactly how long it is. It is very brief, but it's just a camera comes over, and you see him just sitting there, and he has this sort of empty, despondent look on his face. And he's just sitting there in his work cube, like, all right, it's just another day. And it, it, is, it does, in very, very brief period of time, it does a wonderful job of emphasizing just how much he hates that life. 
Now, we could infer that's because it's a cube farm job or because it's something that he himself is rebelling against, the very control of the Matrix, blah, blah, blah. Uncertain. I just like that presentation. Again, excellent visual storytelling. So the agents come for him, and he's like, oh, God, and he gets the phone call from Morpheus, and he realizes, okay, I've got to... I've got to get out. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead. Oh, yeah, I, I just want to mention this really quick. Every single name in this film has really obvious symbolism that I don't really want to go over too much. Smith, Morpheus, Neo, Trinity, all of it's fairly on the nose. I just wanted to comment that I'm aware of it, and I don't really see anything to talk about there moving on. So he go, you know, it's like, okay, you need to go, and you need to walk out on the scaffolding and climb up to the roof. Now, what I love about this scene is that if this happened in, like, any other moment in the film, later on, more accurately, or in any of the other films, this would be a joke. In fact, in most action films, this would be a joke. In real life, there's a film that came out relatively recently where Dwayne Johnson plays someone who literally jumps from one skyscraper to another. Just like it's a thing. Thing is, have you ever been that high up? I have. Couple times in my life, I used to live in much larger cities. As I kind of referenced, I'm actually from California. I don't live there anymore. I haven't in many years. But my point being, I've been up, is what I'm trying to say. And while most people may or may not have a particular problem with heights, when you get that high up, you become a lot more cognizant of what you're doing because you realize just how easy it is for this to go very badly. So if you're actually that high up on the outside of a building, think about that for a moment and think about what's probably going through his head. Try to, if you're capable of picturing exactly what it would feel like to try and get out at the 30th floor of a building, right? Hell, 10th floor. That's not even that high up. Still probably fatal height, though. And trying to go out and get out on scaffolding and climb up and, you know, he loses the phone and... It all does a wonderful job of showcasing what a normal, regular human being would react to basically being told to do action hero stuff. It is an excellent contrast to Trinity's earlier actions when she was trying to escape the agents, because while she was, despite being terrified, nevertheless very smooth and composed, well, actually, composed is the wrong word, but it, there was a professionalism to it. This is obviously someone who knew what she was doing, in other words. He comes across as a bumbling, just, oh, God, oh God whoops, phone, okay. Okay, I'll just... Um, uh, and he's just freaking the hell out, and he finally gives up. He can't do it, and he just turns himself in. It's a great way to showcase that, and this is also important. It establishes his character arc, his growth, because, well, spoiler alert, by the end of the film, he can literally fly. So, actually, if I want to make a direct parallel, if I can, really quick, there's a scene where he's, you know, Morpheus has been shot, and he's going to jump to a helicopter, and Neo realizes he's not going to make it, and without hesitation, straps himself in, jumps out, and grabs Morpheus. Just jumps out. There's nothing beneath him at this point. He's just dangling from a helicopter. The contrast between that and Smith, basically, or Mr. Anderson, excuse me, wrong name, wrong name Mr. Anderson barely being capable of, of walking, edging himself carefully around the outside of a building, is a nice progression of events. So, he gets taken in, they start reading him the riot act, blah, blah, blah. We're willing to wipe this away if you help us get Morpheus. He demands his phone call. I have to admit, I wonder who exactly he thinks he's going to call, other than just a lawyer. <laughs> right? And then they seal up his mouth. Now, this is probably one of the only times in the entire film where something legitimately, uh, let's call it alien, happens. I remember when I first saw this, and second and third time saw this, I wondered why the Matrix, being by the nature of the Matrix, didn't have the ability to reprogram itself more. I have actually developed a new theory for this rumination as to why that doesn't happen. We'll go to that more in a minute. But 
All I want to say right now is that this feels like a perception thing. In other words, the idea is obviously there is no mouth. So all it is doing is d changing a few of the signals to his brain temporarily in order to alter his ability to, to process this. And once again, credit to Keanu Reeves, the total terror he shows at the idea of his mouth morphing and melding into itself is very, very well done. So <clears throat> that happens, and they put the bug in him, and then he wakes up. Now... This is where the dream thing really comes in more, because now the movie is far more overtly trying to establish the idea of, was that just a dream or not? And given the way it ended with something truly inhuman or alien, the mouth thing and the bug literally going into his belly button, you can kind of see how this is more of a logical progression of that theme. Which brings me to Descartes. Descartes, excuse me. Now, this is probably one of the only times I'm going to pause to actually discuss philosophy in this one. One of the oldest types of philosophy... Okay, let me actually rewind a bit here. There's this wonderful bit where Morpheus says, you know, what is real? How do you define real? Now, it's a little bit too on the nose, his speech there, but that cuts to the core of the issue here, because what's going on here is not so much the def uh, what is real and what isn't real as what is the definition of real? How do you define reality? Now, one of the oldest philosophies, getting back to what I was saying, was the idea of, of reality was defined by the senses, what you see, once you smell, etc. And that was something that you could utilize to determine your reality. But, hypothetically, if your senses could be altered or fooled, doesn't that lead to a questioning of whether or not that can be defined as reality? And that, that's where we get to Descartes and the concepts of this filter, which is basically a perception filter that exists between us as sentient sapient beings and the reality we interact with on a regular basis. To you and I, it's very common to think of this as just real, but if you take a step, step back and notice, you can kind of understand how difficult it is to define real. Now... This, of course, also leads to... Gosh, where do I want to go with this one? This leads to the dream concept. One of the more common ideas in this film is the nature of dreams and how dreams may or may not affect or be reality. The Matrix itself is probably the biggest expression of this, the ultimate dream. And yet, because of the actions that go in there, those things can affect reality. And it could be very strongly argued, uh, especially and has in more recent years, that the events of the Matrix are very real. They may be digital, but they are still real. This also gets into the nature of fiction, although I don't want to cover that too much here, and Lord knows I've talked about that plenty when it comes to discussing Star Trek Voyager, but the reality remains the same. What is it that you consider as mattering, because that's the real core question here, in my opinion. This is what I pull out of this. It's not about reality, it's about relevance and the things that you have significance in or of. And the overall message of the film seems to be fairly basic when it comes to that, but in a way that I appreciate because I happen to agree. What is relevant is what you decide is relevant. And we see several different people's perspectives on relevance. Uh, we see the Oracle and her perspective on what is relevant and not. We see Neo, obviously, in his journey. Trinity and her attachment to him. Morpheus and his attachment to his beliefs. Which, by the way, and I want to point this out because it will be relevant later, it extends even outside of the, the construct of the Matrix. And then we have uh, Cypher, is probably the other best example of this, and what he considers to be significant. He doesn't care that the Matrix isn't real, 
What he cares is that it matters to him. Anyways, philosophy over. Um, So, (sighs) there's a scene I have to comment on, because every time I see it, I just roll my eyes a little bit. It's when Switch uh, pulls a gun on Neo and says, all right, Coppertop, nice reference, but, you know, uh, take off your shirt. And, And Neo says, what? And then she, rather than explaining any way, shape, or form, says, all right, stop the car. There's only two rules, our way or the highway. So Neo goes to get out. This is a gross overreaction on Switch's part. Now, the guy I understand completely, because at any moment in time, thanks to the bug, which is literally tracking Neo, it is possible that an agent could pop right into him and become an agent in a car they're in, which would be a, a literally deadly circumstance. But insisting that he play along with everything without any information whatsoever has always kind of bothered me just a little bit. I always got the impression that Switch just didn't really get into this whole thing and basically thought that Neo was just, eh, whatever. It's even funnier because immediately after that, Trinity reaches out to him in a way that uh, that reaches him in a way that he understands without explaining anything, by the way. Because one of the counter-arguments I've always heard is, well, she doesn't want to exposit because he's still bugged and the agents can still listen in. But Trinity manages to reach him without expositing and then gets the bug out and destroys it, right? Also, Neo's reaction, that was real? Interesting little tidbit. I also want to say one thing really quick. Of all of the quotes of this episode that have been requoted and requoted over the years, there's one that has stuck with me for my entire life since, and that is, paraphrased, you know that street, you know exactly where that goes, and that is not where you want to be. So, he goes and actually meets Morpheus, I didn't really know Lawrence Fishburne until this role, and I've seen him in a whole bunch of stuff since then, and I have to admit, I really do like Lawrence Fishburne. In fact, I like most of the performers in this work, uh, with one very noteworthy uh, example, not exception, later on, which I'll get to in a minute. But I think he nails the role of Morpheus, He, because he does an interesting thing. Whenever he, we see Morpheus's projection, he is very efficient and controlled, almost... Well, kind of like an apostle. I hate to say it like that. But there's almost a religious tint to the way he holds himself and the way he is extremely minute in his movements. He only does things when he absolutely has to, and he always does a slight little movement of elaboration that isn't, that's almost of a degree of reverence. It's hard to explain, but I'm sure you know what I'm talking about if you've seen it. By contrast, he's a lot more natural and smooth and just otherwise human when he's outside of the Matrix. This is something that all of the actors do to some extent or another within programs and without of programs, but I wanted to give special prefer- uh, credit to Lawrence Fishburne because he does the most demonstrable variance between his two performances, and I thought it was worthy of note. <sighs> Nobody can explain what the Matrix is, and he has the pills, you know, blue pill, red pill, etc., etc. Very good camera use. That's another thing. Uh, he, he tends to be rock solid sometimes, and I think one of the biggest reasons for that is so they can get the right shot they wanted, like the shot of Neo in his glasses, for example. Um, I want to mention something really quick here before we really get into the next act, because this is basically the conclusion of the first act. The entire first act has all been binary choices. We had what was going on with the, uh, the social interaction I mentioned earlier. There was the job there was the agents, and then there's... Actually, then there was uh, the this, the choice that was offered to him by Switch and by Trinity, and finally the choice by Morpheus. All of these have been binary. All or none, in or out. 
And all of these choices have been basically forced upon him constantly as a measure of testing him, yes, but also because his entire life is functionally a binary existence. Anyone's within the Matrix is. It really is all or nothing when it comes to the Matrix. With one exception. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Um, and so this final conclusion, yes, I finally commit, I have built up to this point, I accept, leads to the big reveal. Now everyone nowadays knows what the Matrix is. It's practically shorthand for this kind of simulation sort of a thing. But as I mentioned earlier, I didn't know that walking into this, and that was a hell of a scene. Very impressive, very impacting, and I'm just like, oh my god. I didn't think it was a power plant at first, I'll, I'll admit that because that's a stupid idea. And I suppose this is as good a time as any to talk about how stupid that is. It's a stupid idea. Alright, moving on. I know I'm expected to sit here and just rant about how dumb the idea is, is using humans as power, especially body heat. But honestly, that point has been dissected and shredded for years and years. I really don't feel like I have anything to add to that particular argument. It is a dumb point. And I do think that given that it's one of the crux mo moments and aspects of the entire film, and indeed the entire franchise, I think that probably should have deserved a little bit of analysis or discussion rather than just everyone kind of accepts it and we just sort of move on from it. I suppose I should answer the obvious question because people have asked me this for years. What's my headcanon rewrite of this? It's very simple. There's no power plant involved here. This is just them keeping the humans trapped because... Well, there's a certain stagnation to the machine society. This is dipping a little bit into the other ga uh, other games, wow. Other movies a little bit, but Animatrix shows this more clearly. Even if we just include Animatrix and the original Matrix, we can see that in the last 200-ish years, the machines haven't done jack. They haven't changed the, the terrain in any particular way. They haven't reclamated anything. They haven't rebuilt anything or built anything new. They haven't developed new technology. They are still weak to some of the same concepts they're weak to forever ago. They have been stuck in a 30 go to 10 this entire time. And in a weird way, that makes sense. It would actually arguably mean that these things are not what we would call true AI. Something that's we're only in the last decade or so really starting to analyze in fiction. The idea of the layers of AI. In fact, if anything, these might be high-functioning VI rather than true AI because of the nature of this limitation on their on what they can do. Thus, the idea then being the reason they keep these humans around is because, well, humans have always been here and one of the original purposes behind the machines was to help and serve humans, so they want to kill us all, so this is our solution to the problem. We'll stick them in the matrix, and we will go to way... And this is, the, this is my other piece of evidence for this, by the way. We will go to lots and lots of effort to make sure that that matrix is good and proper and, and working and functioning when it would be much, much easier in a horrible, horrific kind of a way to just dump them in there and just leave them in there either to rot mentally, or picture this, if you will, for a moment, to, to explain what I'm talking about. Imagine if the Matrix, like the inside, like you beam into the Matrix, and you don't see a city or anything, you see, a, you see nothing. It's the white room, and that's it. And there's six billion people in the, in the white room with nothing else. Now, if that doesn't sound horrific, then you don't understand human nature that well. I'm sorry, because that is a truly nightmarish thing to do. It would, however, be much easier and much cheaper and much safer to do if the only consideration, if the only thing that mattered to them was keep the humans surviving, right? Keep them existing. 
if this was a prison or if there was some cruelty innate to this, that's all they'd have to do. It is eternal hell for people forever. And since new people are being born out of the Matrix, it's not like people can just willingly genocide themselves to get out of it either. Instead, they go to extensive lengths to maintain this image of the past. I'd also like to think there's a little bit of... Um, Normally I'd call it nostalgia, but I guess it's more like patterning when it comes to this case amongst the AIs, amongst the machines, that they literally think of the way that the world was when they were first entered into it as the way the world should be. And since they, for whatever reason, cannot reclimate the actual planet into that, well, they have the virtual planet. This is something that's within their capacity, and thus this is something they maintain on a regular basis. Anyways, so, body heat is stupid, 30 go to 10, the sky is scorched, <laughs> My mother, wonderful Laura Mum, actually had a theory for years that she believes was verified uh, and, and proven to be true with Matrix Revolutions. She believed that the sky was scorched initially and that the, matri the machines maintained the scorching of the sky, maintained the storms, because for whatever reason, they actually prefer it that way. They actually like it better that way. I kind of like that idea, and it also kind of adds a little bit to the whole nature of the machines and this is how we are, etc. But I, I digress. Um, I'm looking at my notes here, because, uh, yeah, I, I already talked about all the AI and the power and blah, blah, blah. What we do learn, both from this film and the Animatrix, is that they basically built AI without regard. And that's the big thing. They just decided to go ahead and develop AI, the humans of this setting, and that was a mistake. Because they basically birthed what was effectively new life without any of the thoughts of the consequences of that. Now, please forgive me, because I'm about to say something that's going to sound controversial, but I swear it's related, so please forgive me. If two people, absent any other extraneous circumstances, decide to have children and do not have the ability to support those children, then what those people are doing is something that could be considered under certain moral circumstances and from some opinions to be negligent because they don't have the, the infrastructure or support to take care of these children ready to go. Make sense? I've actually referenced this relatively recently from my perspective uh, in an episode of Deep Space Nine, which I think actually goes live this month. I'm not sure about that. I can check my calendar really quick. Hang on. Uh, looks like that went live... At the beginning of this month, uh, Past Tense Part 2, the story of the woman who could not support her child anymore, so she abandoned the child, right? My reason for bringing that up as an example is it is something that some people would consider to be an acceptable thought process, that if you're going to bring new life into the world, whether it be having a child or, you know, uh, Frankenstein's monster or crafting AI or whatever that you need to take careful thought into the infrastructure and development of that and ensure that you will be able to take care of it properly when it does, right? Okay, this is, this is not a, an abortion issue. This is not anything else. I want to make this very clear. I didn't even say that word except for just now. So let's just leave all that at the door, okay? What is relevant is that these humans did, were negligent, that they just... Let's go ahead and have AI. And they had no idea how to deal with that, and the bias and bigotry and violence and war that resulted of that was basically humanity's fault. That despite the fact that the machines are portrayed as the bad guys throughout this whole film, it is made very clear, even just in the film and ignoring all other ancillary works, that originally the humans were the bad guys. That the humans started this. And that 
Well, now the humans who are left, who are free, quote-unquote, are trying to, you know, deal with the mess that their ancestors left them, which is another very common fictional and science fictional uh, concept. So, Neo has a breakdown. Good scene, by the way. And there's a, there's a couple of good scenes. And I want to comment again on the visual storytelling here. I mentioned earlier that everyone acts a little bit differently outside, but they also look differently. And I don't just mean their costumes. They're using literally different makeup, different lighting techniques. There's no filter over everything. They're using different lighting uh, presentation. They, their sets are completely different. Everything is being done to try and showcase that the, the, the real world is completely different for the viewer, for the audience, compared to the world of the Matrix. And in fact, I know several people who never really even noticed how fake the Matrix, look, Matrix looks until they saw the real world in contrast. Thus, when they go back to the Matrix in several scenes, the contrast becomes all the more glaring. And it's a good presentation. Getting you used to this, taking it away, and then bringing it back allows us to exemplify the, the variance between the two. So they do the training program. Um, this is when I'm going to start talking about something I referenced earlier. I call it mentally feedback. That's, that's the term I have for it. One of the theories I've, I've had uh, for a long time is that the Matrix cannot possibly be as it's presented because it just didn't make sense to me until I did it for this rumination and I had a new thought on the idea. Here's my new thought. The idea here is that the nature of the simulation is feeding off of their thoughts to generate the program. Now what I mean by that is your actual th expectations and concepts and what food should taste like or what a society should function like. like all the basic everyday stuff that you probably don't think about at all but is constantly pumping through your brain because of the nature of how your brain works um, is is being scanned and used by the matrix to develop along with the other few billion people around you basically to develop a sort of pseudo interactive feedback program thus if you punch a wall a brick wall when you're in the wind-up to this, your brain is telling you, this is going to hurt. I'm not going to touch this wall and it's going to hurt. And all of that is going through your brain, subconsciously or consciously. Thus, when the fist hits the wall, the matrix, which has been scanning and, and feedbacking and all this, gives you the appropriate response to your nervous signals and has the program adjust accordingly. Ow! You know, ah, bloodied, scabbed, knuckles, etc. Thus, someone who can control that feedback loop, or to be slightly more precise, someone who can control what they expect, how they presume things are going to work, can then stretch the bounds of that, basically getting to the point where the, the program says, well, this should be allowable because they think it's allowable. And thus allowing these kind of incidents where someone can, for example, punch through the brick wall without really any problem when doing so even though the program itself is built that that shouldn't be an allowable thing based on the physics and whatever. If it was a true physics engine, that wouldn't be possible, is what I'm trying to say. And that's why this has bothered me for so many years. This feedback idea kind of neatly solved this and helps to explain why certain people, the people who have been freed, or some people within the Matrix who are a little bit more capable of doing things than others, it is their mentality and their perspective, free your mind and all that, that allows them to do more than what the program probably should allow them to do. This also kind of makes it an interesting kind of full subversion. There's this bit where Morpheus says, do you think that's air you're breathing right now? 
And yet later on in the, in the movie, he gets to a point where he is exhausted and battered and can barely function anymore. It's after his, his very brief fight with Smith. Now, the entire film, all of the people have been emphasizing. Now, the film itself emphasizes, but even the people in-universe say, no one's ever faced an agent and lived. The agents are just better than us. If you see an agent, you run, right? It's a very ground-in thing. You can already see where I'm going with this. I think the only reason that Morpheus was defeated there was, as strange as this may sound, because he allowed himself to be. Because even though he firmly believes, if we want to use such a word for it, that he can punch through bricks, he also believes that he cannot defeat Smith. And thus, as Smith pounds on him, he believes Smith is defeating him, and thus that damage being dealt is something that he believes he takes, thus the program makes it real and gives the appropriate feedback to him way back on the Nebuchadnezzar. Make sense? This, in my opinion, helps to explain away what was, for me, one of the glaring flaws that isn't related to the power plant problem of the entire film. It also helps to explain Neo, but I want to save that for later, so we'll just we'll build up to that. <clears throat> so, uh, this is a good time, really quick, to bring up... Uh, I wrote down his name. I, I know I wrote down his name. Eliezer Yudovsky. Which, Yudovsky, excuse me, which I know I'm pronouncing wrong. Um, he's a gentleman whose quote I basically borrowed without realizing it, like a, a long time ago, years ago, and have continued using ever since because it's a very appropriate analogy. That quote is inches amongst giants. Uh, the idea here that if you are to look at the difference between two things, those two things may be different from each other and they may seem like a significant difference, but when you zoom out and take in the aggregate, it is inches amongst miles. Is actually sorry, that's right. It's not inches amongst giants. It's inches amongst miles is the quote. Um, because I'm a filthy American, you could say centimeters amongst kilometers if it makes you feel better. It doesn't change anything. The point being that certain uh, minor variances in capacity have a significant seeming impact, but when you really zoom the camera out, are just indicative of how far the entire aggregate has gotten. Now this is relevant to this film because the nature of the Matrix is that it is the perfect trap for a human being. Human beings are almost, uh, well I shouldn't say almost, are unique as far as we are aware um, of our capacity to think, learn, feel, believe, behave, etc. Our mind is really the one big true thing that differentiates humans from everything else in a provable manner. There might be a soul, there might be a spirit, we don't know. That's not a provable thing, but we can demonstrably and definitively prove that our minds have utterly differentiated ourselves from all other life that we currently know to exist on this planet. In other words, we are in a different category, if you follow me. Because even, and I know this is something I was actually thinking about recently, how strange it is to try and analyze works of fiction that are set in much older times. Because I can read. You can read. You can listen to me and understand this and have no problem keeping up with me, right? My niece can read. She's five. A five-year-old being capable of reading. Try to keep in mind that, that if we rewind time a few centuries, we start to see how lack of widespread reading was. And if we rewind more, we'll see it even more widespread, right? But it's something that's considered commonplace now. 
The reason is, and this is, this is opinion, I'll admit, but I, I can say this fairly strongly, the reason is that the human mind, even the stupidest human mind, still has the ability for thoughts and processes that are way above and beyond what most other creatures can accomplish. The fact that a dog can understand differences of perception shows how intelligent a dog is. But we know that innately. That's a, that's a base level thing for us. And again, even some of the stupidest people have the ability to think, reason, talk, read, write, draw, design, whatever, you know, interact with their environment, to comprehend the things going on around them to some extent or another. Even a flat earther, and yeah, I have no problem making fun of flat earthers because they're dumb, even someone who legitimately believes that the earth is flat is still, by many recounts, a very intelligent creature by virtue of that mind. Thus, the matrix becomes the perfect trap, because the matrix detaches the mind from everything else. The matrix takes that great ability, that great adaption, that great cognizance, and turns it completely against us. We, within the matrix, if we were in the matrix right now in real life, we would have no way of knowing it. There's nothing, nothing to connect us to real life as long as we are sufficiently being fed the right signals into that mind. And this gets back to that reality discussion I mentioned earlier and the true insidiousness of the Matrix and why it's just kind of a messed up scenario when you really think about it. The only reason that the Matrix has any flaws in it at all is that some people have an innate, for lack of a better term, sense of the fact that they are part of a computer program. That lead, you know, like Neo was, was hinted at having earlier, like Trinity flat out said, you know, you feel it, you know the Matrix is out there, all that fun stuff. And of course, there's some of the other side stories. My favorite's the athlete, by the way. I can't remember his name, please forgive me, but the guy who was so on the cutting edge of his abilities that he was able to push himself beyond the bounds of the Matrix, because that makes sense to me. Real-life athletes are, who are really at the highest end of the bell curve are so good and so capable and so in-tuned with their mind and their bodies that it makes sense to me that they would be more aware than others that things don't quite line up. Anyways, so, we have the, the training scene. Good scene. Let's get our first little action of some kung fu going on. Um, I want to give special praise to the actors who actually did take kung fu and martial arts training in order to be able to do a reasonable <laughs> presentation of the job. In many, many scenes, especially in the later films, although I'm not 100% sure in this film, uh, several of the actors did their own stunts and did their own fight scenes and actually had to learn how to do it. And I just wanted to give praise to them. So, and then they have the dress scene and the significance of that. This really helps bring forward something that has not actually been revealed to us at this point in time, and that is the true power of the agents. The agents have the ability to plug into anyone basically at will. Now I say basically. Based on the way this film is showcased, it seems clear that there are some limitations to what they can plug into. Like, they can cast out a search net, but it only catches in a rough area. They need something more specific to home in on an actual individual, and then plug into that specific individual, otherwise they're just jumping randomly. Now, uh, I also... I, it, it helps to establish why they were so afraid of Neo earlier, but once again is doing yet another stepping stone in establishing just how terrifying of a threat the agents really are. Um, I will, of course, have to mention that they got a lot of twins and recurrent people to play the red dress scene because Mouse was lazy and copy-pasted people, except for the red dress woman. That makes sense. Moving on. Um, I like Neo's obvious discomfort in that scene. It kind of helps to showcase how Neo is completely lost at this point and doesn't really know or have a handle on what is, as I say in earlier, relevant, what actually matters to him. 
And um, the unique nature of the war between machines and man is also demonstrated here. Because if you shoot an agent, if you somehow manage that, which is done later, and we see this happen, you're not really hurting that agent. You are slowing it down for the sake of self-preservation. But the person you just killed was a person who is functionally an innocent this is the unique nature of the Matrix and how it can turn people against its own seeking liberators because it's hard to liberate someone who doesn't realize they're trapped. And thus, as Morpheus himself flat out says, these people will fight to protect this system because they, they it is life to them, right? If someone shows up and says, oh my God, you've got to help me. There's the, the, the government is after me. They're trying to beam into my brain. You're probably not going to be in the favor of the person shouting the crazy stuff, right? It's so easy to see both sides of the perspective. And I kind of wish more was done on the morality of this because not a lot is really done to discuss the nature of, well, we have to kill innocents in service of our cause. Now, this is a war, and I will actually emphasize that point. Again, ignoring the later films. But nevertheless, I do think that's something that was interesting, and I just wanted to comment on it briefly. Let's talk about Cypher. Joe Pantoliano is an excellent actor, in my opinion. It's a shame that I don't see him in a lot of works. But I want to give huge praise to him. I mentioned earlier how I think all the actors do at least a decent job of their roles. He's the, the shining star in this one. And I know that sounds weird, because, you know, we've got uh, Hugo Weaving over there, and we've got uh, Lawrence Fishburne over there, and, and so forth and so on. But Joe Pantoliano, who plays Cypher, is, in my opinion, probably one of the, sh the best actors in this particular film. He manages a very nuanced example of someone who is relatable and understandable and slimy and selfish and has a point and yet is going about it all the wrong way. He manages a nuanced villain, and I like that. In fact, one has argued, uh, I, I have not argued this, but I've heard people argue in the past that Cypher is a more interesting and more well-developed villain than Smith is. And now... I do kind of agree with that, but not really. And I want, I'm kind of saving talking about Smith till later, so let's just leave that off for now. Um, what I also like about Cypher, though, is the idea that more people, in my opinion, should probably choose to return to the Matrix. I find it weird that he's the only one we see, and hell, we don't even see that many people in general, who just want to go back. Neo himself says, I can't go back, can I? And Morpheus says, would you want to? And Neo has no answer to that. But I'd like to think that with the huge variety of human beings that we have, that there would be people who would say, okay, this is nice and all, but can I be plugged back in, please? <laughs> and Cypher's a good example of that. This goes back to what I was talking about earlier with regards to relevance. That steak does not exist. That harp music does not exist. And yes, the harp note. And the comfort of being there and being you know, relaxed and, and polished and in a nice suit and all that. None of that exists. None of that is real. However, it is something he can feel, something he can enjoy, and something he can do without real consequence to himself other than the fact that his body will eventually atrophy and die. It's relevant to him whether it is real or not. Thus, he, he chooses to betray his fellows. Now, he is still a villain, but I totally see where he's coming from on that. It would have been an interesting direction to take the story and maybe a side story with lots of people who are like, yeah, we're pro-Matrix. In other words, we want to go back in and we want to stay in, either because we don't want to face reality or because it's easier or because it's more relevant to them, you know, for all the different reasons that human beings could have for that. 
so also of course cypher is the voice we heard at the very beginning of the film and thus it's very obvious that he is in fact the informant blah 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 nice touch good good story crafting the oracle's abilities is the next thing i want to talk about because the oracle can basically predict the future that can be debated and again if we're just looking at this film and the animatrix and ignoring the future films i think we can explain that away relatively easily and i'm going to use a weird example for this Later on, Smith, who comes out and sees that, you know, Morpheus is escaping, shoots him through the leg through a wall. Now that makes sense, because aimbots. If that sounds weird, let me to explain a little bit better. There is a concept called a program, which is an aimbot, which, which basically locks your targeting reticule onto something you want to hit. It can do so basically perfectly. It can just shkunk, and with the processing power of that program, it can, it can do something with extremely high accuracy. Thus, programs can be used to predict things with extremely high accuracy, so long as they are designed in such a way to take in the variables properly, like shooting a gun through a wall, like I mentioned earlier. My theory, ignoring the later two films, is that the Oracle is literally a predictive program. That she has, let's say, a far larger uh, berth of uh, variables at, 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 that are available to her for her to be able to look at, diagnose, and analyze things with such high certainty that she can effectively predict the future. Not literally, and not with 100% accuracy, but in a way that she can have a pretty good idea of how things are going to turn out. You'll notice that all of her predictions in this film are relatively vague, and yet very precisely worded. Now, I actually brought up a quote here on my second monitor I'm going to share with you. <clears throat> so the oracle is like, all right, now I'm supposed to say, hmm, that's interesting, but... And then you say, and then Neo says, but what? And the oracle says, but you already know what I'm going to tell you. And then Neo says, I'm not the one. And the Oracle says, word for word, sorry, kid, you got the gift, but it looks like you're waiting for something. And he says, what? And she says, your next life, maybe. Who knows? Look at the precision with which she states that. Sorry, kid, you've got the gift, but it looks like you're waiting for something. In other words, she never says he's not the one. And your next life, maybe. Very apropos, given the obvious Jesus parallels and Hero's Journey parallels, but more to the point, the literal fact of the sysop life that he begins later, which I'll discuss when we get there. In other words, she is able to basically do what a lot of people do in real life. Look at someone and understand what they're trying to convey with how they're trying to convey it. It's just she has access to a wealth of information that a normal person couldn't have. She's not looking at a person... She is looking at a monumental amount of information which is being dumped upon her at all points in time. That's my take on the Oracle, anyways. Um, let's see here. The spoon is nice. There is no spoon. Most quotable thing, of course. I also, Obviously, a relation to certain Buddhist teachings, which I admit I don't fully understand, so I'm not going to get into that too much. But I do like the idea of it as it's relevant within the film. The idea that the spoon itself doesn't really exist. There is simply a representation of a spoon, which I can then alter at will because my perception of it is it altering. And if the feedback theory is correct, the, the program then adjusts the representation of the spoon based on my perception of what it should be. I change, not the spoon. Makes sense? So they have the glitch in the matrix, which is a nice thing. 
nice way to explain deja vu, even though that's not actually what deja vu is. And uh, Although maybe it is within the Matrix, who knows. It's like Tasty Wee, right? I mean, how do they know what Tasty Wee tastes like? I've always, always kind of wondered that, too. That's actually one of the nice little things. I liked Mouse, and I was really sad to see him die. But his little thing about Tasty Wee is probably one of the most interesting questions I've ever heard asked about the Matrix. How do you know what, what such and such tastes like? How do you determine what something smells like? Like, what basis do you use for that, right? Anyways, anyways. Um, <clears throat> Morpheus fights Smith. Now, I already mentioned some of my thoughts about that, and the scene is very cool. Punching to rise up, getting through the bricks, all sorts of stuff like that. He literally kicks Morpheus up into the air at one point to keep beating on him. But the real thing I want to talk about here is that, once again, we are seeing the threat level of the agents being escalated up yet another step. That we are, we are now showcasing in a very personal way how Morpheus, who thus far has been the biggest badass in the entire film, has been very sure of himself, very controlled, very strong, and, of course, beat the ever-living crap out of Neo in the earlier simulation, get absolutely curb-stomped by Smith. Cypher gets out, and there's a wonderful scene. I, I, I don't have much to add to this scene, unfortunately. It is a very, very good scene. You know, I, he, he should, if he had told us what the truth was of that, we would have told him to stick that red pill. You know, that whole scene is poetry. And again, Joe Pantoliano manages to make it sound like he's someone who's got a frickin' point. Morpheus doesn't tell them the truth. Now, you could argue that he can't, because people would just be like, oh, yeah, okay, we're in a computer simulation. Uh-huh. Right? I mean, if you were told right now, hey, you're in a computer simulation, I'm sorry, but there's like a 99% chance you wouldn't believe that. You might you may be like, oh, that's an interesting thought, but you wouldn't actually believe it, would you? Thus, you can kind of see Morpheus's side, but you can definitely see Cypher's side in this one. And then he starts murdering someone, because he is still a villain. He starts killing people. Poor Switch. Um, and then probably one of the only actually funny moments of the entire film. Like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go, okay, I want you to look into this big, baby blue eyes of his. Now, if there's some big prophecy, if he's some chosen hero, I can't do this, right? Something's got to happen to me. So you got to tell me if you believe. And she says, I do. And then he says on the comm, I don't believe it. And Tank gets up and shoots him. <laughs> It's, it's the funniest scene of the whole movie. I love it. Ah, uh, so then they start hacking Morpheus's brain. One of my only regrets about them hacking Morpheus's brain is it seems to have no long-term effects. I'd like to think that someone trying to sift through someone's mental capacity would literally start to leave, for lack of a better term, scars on their brain and alter them in some way. But instead, it seems to hurt as he is resisting it, but otherwise, no real uh, lasting effects on that, so whatever. They go to kill him. They don't. We're getting to the climax here, which is why I'm speeding up a bit, because at this point it gets to be a lot more action and a lot more thought, and I don't have much to say about action scenes. I do want to say that it was really weird, and it's always weird to see Paul Goddard in this. You're probably thinking, who? Um, he played Stark over in Farscape. He also plays one of the random agents. I forget which one. It, there's Agent Jones and Agent something else. I forget what. But... It's always weird because ever since I've seen Farscape and I rewatch The Matrix, it's like, oh my god, it's Stark. He's just there. He's got like one line to him. No, two. Excuse me. He has two lines to him, and that's it. But anyway. So this is when we finally talk about Smith. Now, I have talked earlier about how the machines are probably simply a high-functioning VI. But at that point, they still would have the ability to have things like preferences or uh, opinions, biases, if you will. 
And thus, the ability for Smith to have a concept like hating something makes sense to me. It does, unfortunately, humanize him excessively, but that does kind of get across the point that these machines are not particularly alien, that they are not an unknown, inhuman concept, that they are very human in their approach and their execution. Smith is the best example of this, but this is true in pretty much all of the works that we see. Now, that's fine. It just it doesn't go as far as it could have with the concept is really the reason I bring that up. Smith himself, obviously, is someone who has his own personal agenda outside of working for the system. His desire to take down Zion, in his eyes, but makes, means that he would no longer have to exist within the Matrix, that he wouldn't have to endure this particular simulation anymore. It's the smell. <laughs> there could be such a thing. It's repulsive, isn't it? And... This is when Hugo Weaving really shines, because he gets across the impression of someone who really is legitimately, truly disgusted by something, and has no choice, but he hates it. And thus we see his drive, and why he's always been the head agent in all this, is probably not because he is literally the head agent, but more because he is the agent who is most interested in no longer being here. I always got the impression that Smith was transferred to this job for whatever reason because it was something that he was good at. He was probably programmed to be this kind of a person or agent, if you will. And then within weeks, it's just like, it's really easy to understand if you sit back and think about it. Have any of you ever been to a sewage treatment plant? I have. Um, or maybe you've, if you've ever had to deal with something which is just really, really gross. The smell is important. I agree with him on that point because Everything that your your mind is telling you when you're in one of those really unpleasant kind of areas is, this is disgusting. And it's hard to process other signals when you're being overwhelmed with that. Try to be hungry when you smell sewage. Try to be turned on when you smell sewage. Try to be relaxed when you smell sewage, etc., etc., right? Most other emotions or processes just kind of run into that wall of... And now imagine that you're dealing with that all the time, that you can't get away from it, that there's nothing you can do about it. You're just overwhelmed by this constant, your signals are telling you that this is horrible and disgusting and wrong all the time. And then you could see how that would basically drive you mad. That how, how that would push you. And, and every, every single one of your actions and motions might actually be entirely focused around getting out of this situation, especially if you have a way out like Smith does. In fact, as much as I like Smith and Hugo Weaving in the second and third films, and I do, I find him far more relatable in this film because his motivation is something I can understand perfectly. Uh, he also takes out his headset, or his ear bit, and I love that little bit because based on how we see people interact with him, and based on the fact that he is totally unaware of the incursion, it's very likely that he, this thing, this is a representation, of course, because it's a program, but this is his literal connection. If, if he basically turns off the phone, if you will, connecting him to the main hub of information, and he's no longer paying attention to anything. It's just him and whatever he is perceiving with, with the, within the confines of his program. It's a nice touch, and I like that. So Neo, you know, they're, they're like, I have to kill Morpheus. And Neo's like, no, no, this is an unjust death. He is going to die. He's willing to die for something he believes in. But that's a lie. I'm not the one. It can't be. But I can't let him die for this. 
and thus what is basically a true belief, something he holds core to his, his self, allows him to push himself in ways that he otherwise wouldn't as the feedback starts to lead in that direction. Also, I love the fact that they just get a bunch of guns. I know they're limited by the fact that this is the 90s and, and tel- you know movie production and all that, but I always found it funnily um, de- low tier that they just get a bunch of guns and storm the building. But I do have to give special praise to the lobby scene. I wish I could talk about it more. If you ever feel like it, go look up. There's there's a lot of makings of specifically about the lobby scene and, and most of the climax of the film. And the finale of the film, excuse me. And they do they, they, they did a lot of stuff, and they definitely everyone involved deserves a lot of praise for these scenes. And I just want to say that really quick. But I mentioned the lobby scene uh, and how brilliant it is and how well executed it is. But it's also very important because a bunch of guys with guns are a threat to our heroes, and I like that. It's something I mentioned and referenced earlier, the fact that our heroes, despite being superhuman, are still low tier. Remember, they're not walking around with armor and, and, and padding and, and, and all the, the expertise and all that. They're just having their own superhuman abilities to try and keep up and get ahead of the, the squad that overwhelms them, both in terms of firepower and in numbers. Then they blow things up. I've never really quite understood why they blow things up, because then they go get a helicopter. Then one of the agents, not Paul Goddard, the other one, dodges bullets. This is yet another stepping stone. I told you I'd keep referencing. This is another stepping stone in the capabilities of the agents and how powerful they are. We get to see that even if you have one right in front of you, you shoot at it, well, that's nice, but not a lot's going to really come of that because they can move that quickly. However, one of the, what I like more about that scene, in addition to the bullet time thing and the 50 cameras they had in a, in, a, in a circle, which is a really awesome effect, by the way, but what I love about that is Neo, having seen that, now knows how to emulate it which goes back to that feedback thing. He is now pushing himself and his abilities in the Matrix more than he otherwise would. He is arguably now past what Trinity and Morpheus were capable of being because he is allowing himself to accept this in a level that they aren't, and he is perceiving what is capable without being told, you can't do that. And so instead, he automatically and instantly emulates it. Now, of course, he has no skill or experience with moving faster than a speeding bullet, so he dodges in a fairly poor and, and not particularly smart way, and he gets shot anyways. But he still starts doing it because he can. And that is really the trick when it comes to the Matrix. You can do that kind of stuff. The trick is knowing that you can with total certainty in the same way that you know that you can clench your fist. You don't really have to think about doing this action, clenching a fist. And that's the level you need to be at to be able to do things within the Matrix. So, then they go to use a minigun. <laughs> to rescue Morpheus. Can I share a quick side story? I, I was re-watching this movie, obviously, for this rumination, and I was suddenly reminded of Ghost Recon Wildlands, which is a game I've been playing with my friend Pax. I'm usually the pilot. I'm the guy who gets the helicopter, and he's usually the person with the sniper rifle sitting on the side of the helicopter. And more than a few times, what I'll do is I'll get in a nice position, and I'll just hold the chopper there nice and steady while he, sitting on the side, starts plucking away at things. And I was just suddenly reminded of that. But the funny thing is, Pax is using a high-powered sniper rifle with lots of penetration, basically an anti-materials rifle at that point. And being very precise. Oh, and also a stealth rifle, so nobody detects it. Neo's using a minigun. <laughs> Which is funny, because he needs to take out three targets, and he needs to do so without hurting a fourth. You'd think the sniper rifle would be more useful here, but whatever, miniguns are cool. I'm with it. And then Smith shoots through the wall. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, 
and then they need to get out. And Trinity takes way too damn long to say goodbye. I actually hate that. It's probably one of the few moments in the entire film that's actually badly written. It's like, okay, we need to get out. And she just stops everything. Keeping in mind, they're in deadly danger and seconds from getting out. But she's like, well, hang on, I need to tell you something. There's something that's very important that I need to tell you. Okay, I'm not going to tell you. Let's go ahead and get out now. Now that I've delayed enough, and then, of course, Smith, who already starts doing the the all-scan thing I mentioned earlier, beams into the bomb and actually shows up. A couple things I want to point out really quick about the nature of the the agents beaming into someone. First of all, every time they do, they get a fresh Desert Eagle, because everyone's got to use a Deagle, right? And uh, with fresh ammo. And every time they do their actual program is is pushed there. And as we see in other things, whoever they left is left behind without any knowledge of what has happened in the intervening period. Now, in almost every aspect of this film, the agents have been very careful to maintain the, for lack of a better way to put it, illusion of the Matrix, that this is real life. In these final moments, we see that they have basically taken off the gloves, that all bets are off. Now, this makes sense to me for two reasons. Number one, Smith's obsession. He really does want to get this information at all costs and therefore is going to deal with this. But number two, the level of threat that Neo is presenting. Remember that Neo killed, functionally, four agents in rescuing Morpheus and successfully rescued Morpheus. That is a very impressive feat and showcases that this is now a high-tier, high-risk threat for the agents. So basically think of it as um, restrictions are removed. And from this point on and for all, through pretty much the entirety of the climax, excuse me, the finale leading up to the climax, the agents shoot in public, beam through people in public, and do all sorts of things that they otherwise would not allow themselves to do. I have to give special praise really quick to the fight scene between Neo and the agent. Uh, Agent Smith, more specifically. Now, this is a really, really good fight scene. And it's also our second tier of escalation. Earlier we've seen uh, how how it is when they fight normal people with guns. Now he's fighting an agent one-on-one, and then the other agent starts showing up, so he has to get the hell out of there. But, and thus it is escalated. But there's another layer to this, and I love this. This is Neo starting to push himself, like I mentioned earlier starting to know what he is capable of within the Matrix. And though it is difficult, because this is the first time he's pushed this far, he is capable of, at great length and effort, of defeating an agent. It is, it is a very close fight, and he just barely manages it. Now that is impressive and awesome and a great step in Neo's journey. And then Smith, the, the subway stops and Smith gets right off of it again. Because remember, the agents can do that. This is yet another step in establishing how terrifying the agents are. Because now agents have been outmaneuvered and shot, and even beaten in a one-on-one fight, and it still doesn't matter because of their ability to just hop between people. This is actually the final tier of escalation for the agents right here. As of this moment, the agents are as threatening as they will ever be in the entire franchise. So Neo runs and runs and runs and runs and runs and there's this great chase scene which of course leads back to the original room which i mentioned earlier the el- the film ending where it began now i want to comment on one other quick thing here really quick morpheus is uh, I, I didn't even mention this because it's actually kind of a 
it's not what I would call good filmmaking, but there's also a real life catch in the fact that there's a bunch of squiddies, you know, the, the, the squid real life machines who are chasing the Nebuchadnezzar and will start attacking it and thus they have a ticking clock situation. They need to set off their EMP, but when they set off their EMP, they lose the connection to the, inter- to, to the internet, wow, to the matrix and when they lose the connection to the matrix, then Neo, who is currently connected, dies. There's issues with that. I'm going to brush over all that. It's a ticking clock. It's a very artificial ticking clock. Moving on. But what's relevant is that the dog is barking. What's relevant is that this ticking clock is a real-life problem. Now, all of Morpheus's beliefs and the way he has expressed his viewpoints and his philosophy, all of that makes sense in a literal, provable fashion inside the Matrix. Because, you know, if you free your mind, you can do more and interaction and feedback and all that stuff that's been in the whole film. All of that makes sense and is not even questionable. Here, Morpheus extends that belief and that faith into the real world. I find that to be very interesting. And to be blunt, I personally think that's probably the most character-defining moment for, Mor- for Morpheus in the entire film. That he really legitimately believes in his cause. In a... Well, to put it bluntly, in a more spiritual sense, in a more fate sense, if you will. So, Neo runs and runs and runs and runs and runs. Smith goes back to the spot where he knew existed, because that's where they found Trinity. Shoots Neo point blank. I want to mention something really quickly. I've always liked the fact that the agents use Desert Eagles. You want to know why? Because Desert Eagle is a goddamn cannon. (laughs) Those things are insane. And probably my favorite aspect of this is there's this very brief scene where it's a very it's a very artistic shot, of course, where Smith pulls the trigger and the gun fires and the gun doesn't budge. There's no recoil. From a deagle, there's no recoil. And I always liked that because to me that kind of emphasized the strength and nature of the agents. I know that's a really minor touch, but it's something that always kind of helped to establish them in my mind, that they could just use a Desert Eagle so casually like that. Anyways, anyways. So Trinity <clears throat> says that she loves Neo. And Neo, Neo gets up and blah, 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 blah. Now, I want to comment on that really quickly here. I usually tend to be against romance and fiction, not because I'm against romance and fiction by itself, although it's not really something I'm a fan of, but because usually, in my opinion, romance is not done well in fiction. Now, Trinity has had very few interactions with Neo, and in fact, there isn't really a lot of chemistry between Carrie Moss and... or Carrie Moss Fisher? Between Carrie and Keanu Reeves, in my opinion. However, I will give them this one tiny bit of credence. It is mentioned several times that uh, Trinity has actually been watching Neo for some time, probably in the month's range, possibly longer. Now, I want you to imagine, I know this sounds creepy and weird, but bear with me for a moment. I want you to imagine for a moment that you watch someone in their everyday life, every day, everything they do for months. It's going to be, especially if it's someone who you are otherwise uh, positively inclined towards, someone you might be a friend with or attracted to, it's going to be very difficult for you to not to, to generate some kind of attachment to that person because you've seen so much of their lives. You've encountered so much of their lives. You, you feel along with them. You are impacted by them. They are relevant to you. Even though there's no real relationship there, you have a relevance that has been built up by these consistent interactions with this effectively fictional interaction. Thus, to me, it makes perfect sense that Trinity could fall in love, you know, basically have a crush, on Neo by virtue of all of the time she had spent being a part of his life without him knowing it. 
This is probably a very easy thing for basically everyone watching this video, and it was certainly everyone who's gotten this far to understand, because you've probably cared about fictional lives, too. Right? Movies, books, games. Hasn't there ever been someone who you've seen their everyday life and you've been there with their everyday life? It's fictional. It's fake. It is not real. But it has a real impact on you because of the relevance you place on it. So, Trinity says, get up. And this is the final step of Neo's, uh, Neo's character arc. Because he's been slowly getting more and more accepting of this idea as he goes. And like it or not, he's, he's kind of been aniking his way through this, hasn't he? We, they even have that line, we have a rule, we don't bring someone out unless they're a certain age. <laughs> Small note. Um, because Neo becomes a sysop at this point. Going back to my theory about the feedback thing, Neo has basically become someone who no longer perceives this as a world at all, but purely as a program and thus has total capacity and control over it because the program is naturally, if my theory is correct, because the program is naturally feeding back and responding to whatever his perception of what should happen is. And if he does so at such an absolute level, it would override most of the system, hence why I call him a sysop. The, agent is the agents are crushed. Smith <sighs> dies. There was actually a lot of theory crafting back in the day about what the hell happened with Smith exactly. And then the Matrix Reloaded trailer comes out and we see Smith and it was just like, wait, huh? A lot of people actually didn't think it was Smith. And then, of course, Neo can quite literally fly just to really emphasize how much the rules of the system don't apply to him at all anymore. And the movie ends. I do like this film. I think that it is a flawed film. But I think it is a flawed masterpiece, that there are very, very good elements and a lot of things worthy of talking about, discussing, and ruminating on. I hope you have enjoyed my thoughts on this. I'll see you guys next time.